Given and giving, God's perfect perspective on possessions. Let's begin with a prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for all of the things that you have given us, and we thank you most of all for giving us the greatest gift. Help us come to appreciate a feature of the gifts that you give us, a special gift that, in fact, is the gift of giving. Please help us see everything through your eyes. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When you think of giving and uh, holidays where this occurs, occasions where this plays out, you, I mean, you probably think about Christmas. You probably think about getting gifts for someone for Christmas. Is there somebody who jumps to the top of your mind? This is like the hardest person to get a gift for. Do you know somebody like that? If you do, is it because they already have everything and you don't know what you could get them that they would like? Is it because they don't have everything, but you really have no idea what they like? Or maybe you have given them a gift and you don't think they did like it, and so now you're scared about finding something else for them, which you anticipate might not go over well as well. That's what makes it hard to get a gift for someone that's hard to get a gift for, right? You, you don't know whether they're going to like it. And that maybe helps us understand what it is that makes a gift good. A gift is good not because the giver um, is convinced it's the right thing and that means it will be, right? A gift is authentically good when the one who receives it says it's good. A gift is authentically good when ultimately the receiver says, yes, this is good. Today we're going to be talking about a gift and a receiver and finally, what, what is our perception of that gift? And this is talked about in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And we're going to start in verse 1. Now, there are two groups of people that you need to have in mind when you read 2 Corinthians chapter 8. The first group is Corinthians. Those are people that live in the city of Corinth, and Corinth is just to the west of Athens, modern-day Athens. So, kind of further down in Greece, right? Just west of Athens. The other group of people that you need to know are the Macedonians. Now, the Macedonians are northern Greece. So there we're thinking about Thessaloniki in modern Greece, on the north side of the Aegean Sea. So the Macedonians way on the top of Greece, and the Corinthians way close to the more bottom of Greece. Paul is writing to the Corinthians, but he's going to talk to them about the Macedonians. So let's read 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1-7. to and now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. So we urged Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you also excel 
in this grace of giving. The Macedonians. They were the model that Paul holds out to the Corinthians as he is encouraging them also to give a good gift. Now, how was this... How did Paul get to know the Macedonians? How did Paul get to know the Corinthians? Well, on his second missionary journey, Paul went to Macedonia, to the cities of Philippi and Amphipolis and Apollonia and Thessaloniki, Thessalonica, and Berea. You might recall from the city of Philippi when Paul was there, he didn't find any Jewish synagogue in the city of Philippi. There weren't a lot of Jews there. So he went out to a place of prayer by a river, and there he met some ladies. One of them was Lydia. She Uh, was brought to faith in what Paul was sharing about Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. So we have a new Christian believer in Philippi. And Paul kept going out to this river from the main city. And while he was on the way, there was a girl that shouted out, like, these are servants of the Most High God. And you'd think, wow, that sounds like a great thing. Except she was demon-possessed. And Paul knew that the devil was uh, taking charge of this of this girl and that hurt him and ultimately by the power of God he drove the demon out of this girl that made her owners upset because they were making money off of her because she was able to tell the future and so they had Paul arrested and he was beaten by the administrators of the city he was thrown into prison in the middle of the night there was an earthquake while Paul and Silas his companion were singing hymns to the Lord the jailer was ready to kill himself but Paul and Silas said stop nobody's left yet well the jailer was overwhelmed with joy his life had been given back to him in a way. He has Paul and Silas leave the, leave the prison with him. They go to his home in the middle of the night, and the jailer is baptized. And his whole family is baptized. And then Paul and Silas do leave the city. They, make the, they say, well, the administrators of the city have to let us out of prison to show that we were wrongly accused, which happened. And then Paul goes to the city of Thessalonica, where preaches in the synagogue for three weeks, And then the Jews got upset at him. They formed a riot with bad characters from the marketplace. They go to the house of Jason where they expected to find Paul as well, but he wasn't there. Jason was there. They dragged Jason before the courts. The courts make Jason post bond. And then that night, Paul, in the dark of night, gets out of town and goes to Berea where he finds people of a more noble character who compare what he is teaching to the word of God. And by God's grace, they believe what he is teaching. But then bad characters from Thessalonica, the Jews, come to Berea and chase Paul out of town there. And then he goes to Athens in southern Greece and then ultimately to Corinth where he spends a year and a half and gets to know the Corinthians very well. And that's the end of the second missionary journey, essentially. And so now Paul goes back to the land of like Israel, eastern Mediterranean, and then heads out on his third missionary journey where, what does he do? Well, he ends up after some time in Ephesus, going back to Philippi and Thessalonica. And what is he doing on this third missionary journey? Well, he's collecting two things. First, he's collecting money. Why? Because in the Israel area, there had been a great famine and Christians were not having enough to eat. So he's collecting a gift to help them stay alive. He's also collecting people, specifically people who will go along with him carrying this gift. So representatives from the cities that made an offering, they kind of had that money from the people they knew and they delivered that money and ultimately they could go back to their city and say, we we did what you had asked us with this gift. So Paul 
and these group this group of representatives of cities and the money they were moving again through the northern part of Greece and Paul writes second Corinthians and what is he doing well he's letting them know that he's about to be there and this gift they had planned on giving from already a year ago he's now going to collect that and take it along and so he wants them to be ready for this gift for the collection of this gift and in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, we have a beautiful section that talks about the use of money. How do Christians use the possessions God has given them for God's glory? Now, I've read verses 1 to 7. Maybe you've forgotten some of it already. If your Bible is open, you can look at those verses again. When you read that, there might be a number of things to you that, like thinking about it from the perspective of your flesh, the way humans would normally think, you'd say, all right, <laughs> like that is upside down. What? There's no way that people actually believe that? Look at Second Corinthians 8 verses 1 to 7. What to you, just like by nature as a human being, would seem upside down? Well, maybe one thing. Out of their severe trial, they were joyful. So, they're hurting, but there still is joy. Upside down. Or, extreme poverty. <clears throat> it welled up in rich generosity. Upside down. If you're poor, you're not thinking about giving to someone else normally. Upside down. They pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing with the saints. Is that what people do? They beg for the chance to give their money away? Right? Upside down. So, all of this upside down stuff, that's by nature how even, yes, in the life of a Christian, the sinful flesh, that's, that's what we think, right? So, what I'd like you to to talk about now or think think about in your mind is well if you were to take those upside down things as god says them how would we restate them according to our human nature like how would humans the sinful flesh of people how would they say it if it seems upside down to us the way it is well out of their most severe trial their overflowing joy I don't know, we'd probably say something like, in the midst of their trial, they found it very difficult to be happy. Or, their poverty welled up in generosity. Because they were so poor, they thought they had the best excuse out of anyone not to give anything. Or plead for the privilege of sharing with the saints. How about, oh, like if they don't ask me, I am not going to volunteer anything. I hope they pass by this city and don't even notice that I'm here. We've just made a bunch of upside-down statements right-side up. According, well, like how did, how did you, you probably could have thought up those on your own. How is that? Like we didn't have a session before we started this Bible study. Okay, I'm going to ask a hard question and you're not going to know how to answer it. Here are the right answers. Right, we just instinctively know the wrong answers. We can instinctively rewrite 2 Corinthians 8, in a way that 
feels better to us. Like, well, where, where do we come up with those ideas if no one taught us those ideas? That shows the deception of our sinful flesh, doesn't it? We are hardwired. Our sinful flesh is hardwired to think the wrong way about money. Nobody had to teach us that. So, when you imagine being talked to about money, there may be a little part in you that is, oh, no, not again. Or, like, maybe you imagine talking to someone else about money, even a, a Christian. You're talking to a Christian about money. When, when we talk to someone else about money, our assumptions about what they are thinking makes so much of a difference because, and now fill in the blank. So when we're talking to another Christian about money, our assumption about what they are thinking makes such a difference in what we say because, like what do you assume? Even a fellow Christian is thinking if the pastor brings up giving gifts of money to the Lord. Or what would you assume if you were talking to that person? Like, would you assume that, <laughs> I don't really, don't really want to say this, but I bet they don't want to hear this. <laughs> like, I, I bet they're not, I bet they're hoping that pastor, does, I, I bet they're thinking, you know, he probably thinks he has to talk about this, so go ahead, but I'm not going to, right? I mean, how many, how many of us would imagine that if we're talking to someone about, Christian giving, that we're assuming they have a negative attitude toward it. Right? That's what we just assume. And how does that change the way we talk about money? Well, we might apologize. Like, I know, like, I know this is an uncomfortable topic, but, and then, so we already like give the impression from the get-go that there is something bad about it. Or we might decide just not to talk about it. Um, I don't want to bring it up. I, I'm not going to bring it up. Right? We're, we assume, and what are we basing that assumption on? We're basing that assumption on ideas that are generated from the sinful flesh. And so when the sinful flesh is, at least in our minds, getting its way in the heart of the person that we're talking to, do we kind of apologize for that or try to weasel our way around that? If our sinful flesh is saying something about money, we properly take it on. It, it is a sin to be selfish. It is a sin to assume that when God's talking to us about money that there's something wrong about what God is doing. It, it is a sin to think first of what I would like to do rather than what, right? When we have, when we have issues with money, like in the heart of a Christian, and like we were able to rewrite that section without ever being taught because we just have these wicked inclinations in our sin. When we know that our sinful flesh, when we know that our Christian friend's sinful flesh is the source of all that is evil. We don't stop talking about money because of that. We take on the sinful flesh and its wrong attitudes about money. And in the end, if we properly ourselves are confessing or our Christian friend is confessing 
that they have not honored God. They have loved earthly things more than God. The proper place for that is, well, what a wretched, what a wretched man I am. Because God properly punishes. Yet what a miracle, right? What a miracle that the love of Jesus gave his life for sinners like you and me. That all of the hesitance, the reluctance that we've had about honoring God with our wealth, sins, shameful. Our Lord Jesus made his own and suffered the eternal consequences for them. And he assures you that you've been forgiven. He has washed you clean. You are pure in the sight of God like you have never had any negative attitudes toward money. And when we think about talking to our fellow Christians, then when the law of God takes on our sin and then the good news of Jesus sets aside those wicked conclusions of the law by bringing forgiveness for them, they're not attached to us anymore. We properly assume, as we're talking to a Christian rejoicing in the good news of Jesus, that that person wants to hear everything that God, there's no apology coming out of our mouths, like, I'm really sorry I have to talk about money. No, there's like, I've got something really exciting I need to tell you about. And what did Paul have to say for the Corinthian Christians? Right, go back to those verses, verses 1 to 7. We want you to know about the gift of God that God has given to the Macedonian churches. The gift. God has given a grace, a gift. What is the gift? What is it? Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. God gave them the gift of giving. Like, isn't that crazy? God gave them the gift of giving. Being able to actually giving. That is a gift from God. Imagine that your pastor stood up in front of the congregation very close to Christmas with a box. And he said, I've got one of these for every person in this church. They're in the hall behind, behind the sanctuary. Like, what are your kids thinking? I think, Mom, did you hear that? We're all going to get a gift, right? There's nothing but excitement. And that is exactly how Paul starts off this encouragement to give. He said, look at your brothers and sisters in Macedonia, Corinthians. God gave them a gift. Do you want it too? <laughs> like, do you, he's given it to you too. There's nothing that we would rather do than open up this gift of giving. What else does, like, what other truths are at the core of taking this, what to the sinful flesh appears nonsensical and upside down and demonstrating, actually, this is, this makes perfect sense. It is right side up. Well, that you're joyful in the midst of trials because you know your eternal home, that poverty can well up in generosity because they weren't going to let the fact that they didn't have much keep them from getting this gift from God. They wanted the gift no matter what, right? They were so eager to share what they had been given, little as it may have been, with their brothers and sisters in Christ in Jerusalem. Um, entirely on their own, they pleaded, like, like we are begging, like we want that gift. Dear Lord, give me that opportunity to share where we're saying to our spiritual leaders, you have got to find a way to be able to use something that I can give to you to bring glory to God, right? Like all of these things make perfect sense. And in particular, because of what Paul says next. Let's look at verses 8 and 9. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. 
For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. It is hard to talk about Christian giving in the right way. What words or approaches have you heard, um, either from others or from maybe just the thoughts of your own heart? Uh, words or approaches which uh, would you put in the category of these are wrong ways to talk about giving to the Lord. Have you heard some of those wrong ways? Has it ever happened to you that you were basically told, all right, like if you love Jesus, then you better give this amount. And you're thinking, I do love Jesus, but boy, that sure felt uncomfortable. It makes me feel like oh, I'm going to try to prove that I love Jesus by this, or am I supposed to wonder whether I really love Jesus? I better do this, or maybe I don't love Jesus, right? Where it's fear-driven. Have you ever have you ever felt like your giving is fear-driven of what other people will think about you, of what God will think of you? Have you felt like you've been guilted into doing something because of what other people did, or they, they did better than you and you better keep up? Or what are some of the wrong ways that you have heard money being talked about? That if, if you give a gift, then God is going to give you way more. Like it's almost greed that prompts unselfish giving. Like how does that work? Unfortunately, it is very common that giving, and even within Christian circles, can be encouraged based on some kind of a guilt or something that is not what God says is at the center of giving. What is at the heart? What is the motivation? Well, what Paul says next, I am not commanding you. But I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not commanding you. Like, notice Paul is not, all right, here's what you got to do. But on the other hand, you might say, well, he's saying he's not commanding them, but I know, I know what he's really doing. Like, he doesn't want to admit what he's really doing. This is kind of a word trick. Well, like, is it a word trick? What if one of you, a husband or a wife, were to give a gift to your husband or wife? And after you gave it, you say, by the way, I just want you to know I did this because God says I have to. How would that make the person who received the gift feel? Like all of a sudden it's been robbed of its genuineness. That... When a husband gives a gift to his wife or a wife gives the gift to her husband, it's something that one does out of love, a heart of love. And is it true? Does God command us to love our wives? Does God command wives to honor their husbands? Absolutely. And do we do it because God commands it? I suppose in a way you'd say yes, but... but the motivation, the heart of the motivation is love, just pure love. What Paul is saying here is not that this isn't a command, but what he is saying is that's not, we don't do it because, well, I guess I have to. It is something that is motivated purely by 
And now by what? For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, he became poor, so that we through his poverty might become rich. He had everything. And he was willing to let go of it, to suffer death on the cross, to take all of those wrong attitudes that we have had toward money, which ought to have resulted in our eternal destruction. And he made our eternal destruction his own. He suffered separation from God himself. Loved you, loved me that much. When, when you've suddenly been set free from fear, when, when, when you're a Macedonian, you had no idea about this. You were living a life like that jailer of what earthly goals and finally, I mean, he thought it was worth killing himself because of what would happen to him if all of his prisoners had escaped. And all of a sudden you find out that there's hope, that God loves you, that you're not alone, that you're forgiven, that you're going to live forever with Jesus by faith in him. There is nothing you could have that is worth more than that. When you've been given a gift that big, there's nothing that makes sense except to say thank you and thank you and thank you and thank you. Like, you're not even thinking of it in terms of a command, although you could say that is God's will, that is God's command, that we are grateful, right? But you're not even thinking about that. You're thinking, all you're thinking about is the gift, the gift that is yours, the gift that is one that you don't have to in any way be afraid of losing by the power and grace of God. It is yours, right? And that's what, that's what you know. That's all you need to think about. That is your motivation for an eternity, and it certainly motivates the actions you take in time. Paul goes on. Chapter 8, verses 10 to 15. Here's my advice about what is best for you in this matter. Last year you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work, so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what he does not have. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need. Then there will be equality. As it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little did not have too little. What is Paul doing? He's encouraging them to take action, to complete the work, Corinthians, you were committed to this follow-through. You know, it can happen when your heart's on board with something that in the end still the action falls through. And maybe that's because you just forgot about it. Maybe because there's not like an organized structure that you can follow in order to actually do the thing that you want to do. Right? Paul responds to both of those. He, he, he reminds them before he ultimately shows up in their congregation to take their gift and give it to the Jerusalem Christians and he also provides a structure for it. I'll, I'll be there and we'll collect and, and we'll go and deliver this to those who need it. So for us to have a heart that is committed to the Lord and wants to give is now for God to encourage us. Go for it. Now, how much do we give? Well, what's the Lord's answer to that question? How much? I mean, what, he, what he focuses on is if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has. The one thing he doesn't say is give what you don't have. That whatever we give, it's, it's consistent with what God has given to us and there's a willingness. Like we want to do it. The issue is we're not even really asking ourselves how much. 
we're just saying, boy, I love God. Like with husband, wife, I love her or I love him. And you, you simply want to do something that shows your love. And the same is true with God. You simply want to do that which reflects your love for God. And what beautiful freedom and joy there is in a gift that is chosen, flowing from a heart of love, a willing, joy-filled gift. When you think back to what it is that makes it hard to buy a gift for someone, at the core is where you don't know what they really need or want. To find out that we've been given a gift from God and that his gifts are perfect means that his gift to us of giving, a generous heart, that that is exactly what we want. We've been given the perfect gift, a gift that we recognize is good. By God's grace, we have been given the gift of giving. Let's close with a prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we do not deserve any of your gifts. Thank you for giving us salvation and thank you also for giving us the privilege, the gift of giving. In Jesus' name we give you thanks. Amen.